Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia's foreign policy, welcoming Syrian President Bashar al-Assad back to the Arab League, hosting talks between warring Sudanese parties, a deal with Iran in Beijing, talking to Houthi rebels in Yemen. What should we make of all this Saudi diplomacy? It's with pleasure today that Dr. Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, is present here as the League of Arab States has handed down a resolution allowing Syria to resume involvement in our meetings. And we hope that this will contribute to the restoration of peace and security in Syria in order to lift up and resume its role in the Arab region for a better future for the entire region. The past few years have seen some changes in Saudi Arabia's foreign relations. Just this past weekend, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad attended an Arab League meeting after a decade of isolation. We just heard Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman welcoming Assad back. That follows a deal brokered by China last month that saw the Saudis agree to re-establish diplomatic relations with Iran, which had been severed since 2016. Saudi Arabia's open talks with Houthi rebels that Riyadh had been trying to defeat for several years in neighbouring Yemen. It's also involved in diplomatic efforts to end Sudan's fighting, hosting talks between representatives of the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces in the Saudi city Jeddah. We heard about some of that diplomacy on last week's episode. Plus, Riyadh has mended relations with Qatar after a dispute within the Gulf Cooperation Council, which saw Saudi Arabia and other capitals blockade Saudi's smaller neighbor. Here's the Saudi crown prince again. We want to assure our neighboring and friendly countries in the east and west that we are moving forward for peace, cooperation and construction in a way that achieves the interests of our people and preserves the rights of our nation. We will not allow our region to be turned into a field of conflicts and we must turn the page in the past. For years, our region has suffered and lived through years of conflict and our people have suffered as a result. All in all, it's quite a change of tone, a far cry from a few years back when the Crown Prince was comparing the Iranian Supreme Leader to Hitler. So what explains this flowering of Saudi diplomacy, this seeming recalibration of Saudi policy? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome on to the show Dr. Abdulaziz Sagar, who is founder and chairman of the Gulf Research Center, a very well-respected institute in Riyadh. He's also a member of Crisis Group's Board of Trustees. Dr. Abdulaziz, welcome on. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be with you today. So we'll talk today about Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. In depth, we'll zoom in on Assad at the Arab League. And I should say we're recording this a few days before the Arab League meeting. We'll talk also about Saudi Arabia's involvement in different parts of the region, its mediation in Sudan, its relations with the US and with China and how it's navigated the collapse in relations between Russia and the West over the war in Ukraine. But perhaps, Dr. Abdulaziz, we could start with a bigger picture question. We heard up top about all this recent Saudi diplomacy. Are we right to see it as a recalibration? And if so, what explains it? Yes, you're absolutely right. I think what explained it that the Saudi Arabia foreign policy decided to have a, what I would call looking into the regional issues first, because As you know very well, there has been a difficult time in the relation between Saudi Arabia and some of the countries in the neighborhood, particularly when we talk about Iran, Yemen, Syria, uh, Lebanon. But uh, the changes that Saudi Arabia turned into the region, whether it's starting from the Al-Ula conference where it brought all the Gulf countries together and tried to resolve the old issue, which started in 2017 between 
قطر ساودي اريبيا يو اي ام بحرين and this was the alula meeting in early 2021 that sort of turned the page on the dispute within the gulf cooperation council yes you're right and luckily it went very well and we start a new base in the gulf side and then to follow that i think iraq was the second online so saudi arabia did a great step toward iraq iraq still is a neighboring country we have a big border with it we don't want iraq to be out of the arab scene because although we understand they have kurd and other minorities but at the same time iraq is a key founding member of the arab league and then tend to be to the, <laughs> the other side which is iran and in iran of course there has been a lot of track to discussion between saudi arabia the gulf and iran and until the december visit of the president of china to saudi arabia when we had the uh, summit i think for the first time such an important security council member like china with its own strong relation to both saudi arabia and to iran have decided to really name the issue quite clearly and soon after president ibrahim raisi the president of iran visited china and he was welcomed by the chinese president i think that was an important step because china enjoy a very strong relation to both countries to saudi arabia and to iran so i think the good thing is this two have enjoyed a good relation to china and china mediation was very much welcomed of course i will get into that in little bit detail then we move toward syria you know 12 years of internal conflict in syria did not bring any peace or security and i think the saudi position there remain quite clear that yes we want to have a reform inside we would like to see all pending issues like the release of the prisoner the retain of the refugees the uh, good neighborhood relation and also the disengagement of Russia and Iran particularly in external forces inside Syria Yemen of course was an important step and we hope it will go to a permanent ceasefire and there will be a lot of internal political discussion so you can see it started from the gulf countries and then Iran as a big neighbor Iraq also as a, an important neighbor Yemen Syria Lebanon I think the issue is very clear for Saudi Arabia they don't want to have a hegemony of a specific party they would like to see the Lebanese being able to decide on their future and to determine what sort of political system they would like to have Hezbollah unfortunately has been a disturbing factor in really appointing a president and a government in Lebanon so the overall picture maybe I will add another point to it which basically I would say do we still have the same trust in the US commitment of the regional security because if there was the same you know strong trust in the US commitment when it comes to what would China visit it was very clear that Saudi Arabia did inform all our alliances and at the same time before the signing of the agreement in March they were notified also a day or two before but Traditionally, the U.S. used to play a very strong security role in the region, very much committed. But we have witnessed lately this engagement, confusing statement that may have led to a lack of having a full confidence on the U.S. policy toward the region. And so we'll have a chance in a moment to come to some of those places you talked about. Syria, of course, Assad at the Arab League, the deal with Iran, plus, of course, Yemen, Iraq, relations with the U.S., 
But there's sort of a sense, if you go back a few years, what you had the standoff within the Gulf Corporation Council, the GCC, you also had Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri coming to Saudi Arabia, leaving without his job. Riyadh was enmeshed in Yemen, bogged down in, you know, in essence, an unwinnable war. Relations with Western and some other governments were difficult because of the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Then in 2019, you had the attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure and Iran was widely assumed to be behind those. And the US didn't do anything, despite all the support the Saudis had shown to then President Trump's so-called maximum pressure strategy against Iran. So wasn't it maybe that Saudi Arabia felt a bit too exposed, that the regional environment was hostile, that some of the more aggressive parts of Saudi policy had backfired, they weren't working, that maybe it was time to try something else, an increased emphasis, as you say, on the region, but also on diplomacy and repairing some of those relationships. Yes, there are plenty of subjects that you have mentioned, but I'm sure each one of those subjects have been dealt with from the Saudi foreign policy side. Maybe it was not to the best of what others want, but at the same time, I think it was taking into account the Saudi interest. And I think this is the trend that you will see today. Saudi Arabia is dealing very direct from the uh, interests of Saudi Arabia. Saudi, they would like to end the conflict in the region. They would like to focus on development in their country and on other countries also in the neighborhood. They would like to see prosper economic development and a much more, you know, good things for the people instead of staying permanently on a conflict zone. But some of the subjects that you have mentioned, including Saad al-Hariri and Jamal Khashoggi, I think it has been dealt with at the time. And I think, you know, they overpassed that one. But at the same time, let me just, you know, mention a little bit on the attack of the uh, Saudi critical oil facility. When it was launched, it was launched, of course, from Iran. But at the same time, our strong partner, the U.S., they may have condemned the attack, but they did not really give us any evidence to prove that this attack came from Iran. Because when you send the cruise missiles, every 30 seconds, it's linked to satellite communication. And at the same time, all part has been collected from the location. The U.S. took it and they analyzed it. But at the same time, a probability report would say, you know, somebody thinks that some of the part could have been manufactured in Iran and so. But there was no clear evidence given to Saudi Arabia on this attack. Maybe at that time, it was the, you know, U.S. interest. They wanted to slow down the escalation with Iran. But at the same time, it gave us also a lesson that even our strong partner, when we needed to see their defense, you know, defending a very critical oil facility, not only for Saudi Arabia, but for the rest of the world. I mean, luckily, we had a great capability in, in the Saudi side that have been able to deal with a lot of the damages within a month. We brought back a lot of production back into place. So I think it was quite good. But you know, prior to that, there was another three lessons. You know, there was this um, commercial vessels that have been attacked and no respond. It has been the tanker also has been attacked also and there was no respond. And the U.S. drone also has been attacked. We were wondering what are the sort of rules of engagement that was taking place in the Gulf region and how the U.S. define their role and how do they see the you know relation to their partner in the region. So you know, this have raised a big question. And this is why maybe the, the, the big issue was that, yes, U.S. has its own interest. They want to revisit the relation with Saudi Arabia, but also Saudi Arabia 
would like to revisit the relation also with the U.S. and uh, emphasize more in their own interest and look at that more carefully. So we're recording this before the 19th of May, the Arab League meeting coming up this weekend. It'll be the first that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad will attend in many years, what is it, since the pretty much the beginning of the war in Syria that Saudi Arabia, Arab countries, broke off relations. So getting back into the Arab League was something that Assad himself clearly wanted. But how big a deal is it? I mean, how much does this really represent a shift in the region's view of Assad that he's back in the Arab League? And what do you think Riyadh hopes to get from it? It's a great question. At the same time, let me go back to a few things here. Saudi waited the first year, you know, before condemning Syria and before taking any position. And at the same time, I think the Saudi message at that time to Syria, resolve the problem domestically. Please bring reform to your nation. Please stop any aggression against Until, you know, 2012, you know, I think it was in August, if I'm not mistaken, then the Saudi clear statement came out. And so I realized that we have to stop and we have to cut the relation with. But at the same time, there was a lot of exaggeration on the threat coming from Syria, with the exception, of course, of the organized crime. We used to have that, not at the same level that today we have, particularly on the smuggling the drugs, uh, the Kiptagon also, you know, to Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries. So there wasn't really much, you know, direct security threat to the Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia in particular. I mean, ISIS were there, but we've had the international coalition of ISIS, Saudi, they were part of it. It was dealt with the an extensive collaboration between all the partners. But at the same time, after 12 years, we see no changes. We see that still people suffering are there. Unfortunately, 8 million people as refugees in the country's neighborhood, including in a country like Germany, I think there's almost close to 800,000 or more. So the situation deteriorated. And I think the key issue of reforms on the Saudi mind, and I think it was brought when the agreement was made that Syria will be back to the Arab League, I think it was preconditioned step by step. So in other words, Assad has to do certain step to be able to move to the other step by being able to attend the summit or some of the ministerial's meeting can be attended by his cabinet member. And so that's great. But at the same time, is that the end of it? And, and is that all? No. The answer, in my opinion, no. I think if he wants to be part of the Arab League and he wants to be fully integrated, I think he must address the key concerned issues. No external forces to be in Syria, whether it's Iran or Hezbollah or Russia. At the same time, he has to take all the necessary steps toward the reforms that he needs to take. I mean, we don't have a strong economic relation to Syria. We have a very minor relation in, in terms of economic. So most of the Gulf countries, there will be a donor. And if you are a donor, you want to make sure to understand where the fund is going and who is using that and where is that going to be spent. I think also he has to pay attention to the changes of the constitution according to Geneva 1. I think there was a talk also about trying to have an international fund through the UN that will focus on the reconstruction. It's premature to judge many things, but I think it's a one step, which is a good step. At least there will be a direct dialogue. And that direct dialogue can bring some of the issues. Isn't part of the challenge with Damascus, leaving aside the monstrous crimes that Assad and his government have perpetrated in Syria, obviously the ties with Iran, with Russia, are pretty tight. 
seems unlikely there's going to be much change there. Damascus very reliant until now, at least, on their support. But even more broadly, on, you know, as you say, prisoners, on refugees, on a settlement, Damascus so far has refused to compromise on any of those questions for years. Plus, the main incentive that Damascus might have is an economic one. It's investment from the Gulf, from other parts of the world. But at the same time, it's difficult to invest with the US sanctions. And for now, at least, Washington seems unlikely to lift those. Absolutely. No, I was going to say, I was going to say, in all the three, there are difficulty. Russia cannot give him money because of the sanctions in Russia. Iran cannot give him money because of also the sanctions there. And because also the US sanction, we, the Gulf country, might be not able to do more than a real humanitarian side unless he really fix the situation domestically and come up with the necessary reform that needed to be. So he has to comply to the international demand also. Could we move, Abdulaziz, to the deal with Iran? So 10th of March, a couple of months ago now, Saudi Arabia, Iran signed this deal in Beijing. I think it was interesting you said earlier that Riyadh had given Washington a heads up beforehand. Maybe it wasn't so much a surprise that the deal itself happened and there'd been track two talks. You'd been involved, crisis group had been involved for some time between Saudis and Iranians. Saudi and Iranian officials had been meeting previously in talks brokered first by Iraq, then by Iran. But maybe it was a bit more of a surprise that the deal came when it did and that it was brokered by China. Do you want to say a word or two about the timing and why the deal sort of came about when it did? First, let me say that Saudi were always agreeing to have a direct relation and a direct negotiation. We have never, I mean, as I said, there have been also a track two discussion since 2013 until 2020. And crisis group also, they have been involved in that one. I, I myself have participated in that. So I think the track two also did prepare the ground for the track one and a half and for track one, uh, you know, which is very important also. But I think the Iranian also have reached to the point where they felt lonely. You know, they felt they didn't know what's going to happen. JCBOA is in a coma. There is nothing moving there. And at the same time, without a reasonable relation to the neighborhood and reestablishing a direct relation, they will be having difficulties. And Saudi, as I said, at the same time, we wanted to avoid in case if there is any scenario also on a military attack. Why do you want to be not in a talking terms, I would say, not reasonable, not a good relation, but I see at least talking terms with Iran and having a direct diplomatic relation does not mean we have resolved all regional issues. I think it means that now we have the official channel directly between both to start talking. And I think it's up to Iran to prove their good intention because the regional agenda remains in the Saudi top list, by the way. There's no changes there, which is the uh, uh, maritime security, which is the uh, critical oil facility also there, terrorism, support of the militia in the region, interventionist policy, sectarianism, using sectarianism as a dimension of expansion also, the whole regional security architecture and how to go about it and so. So there are many issues that still on the region of concern. And how do you see those efforts sort of improve ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia aiming to improve so regional security, how do you see those as linked to the nuclear talks, the world trying to get some sort of agreement about Iran's nuclear program? The region still consider the nuclear deal and the nuclear agreement. In 2015, 
we were giving some assurance that this deal, if it goes, there will be a better regional you know, arrangement and, and a better regional security that will be guaranteed. Unfortunately, nothing happened. This is why when President Trump decided to withdraw from this JCPOA, we did not mind it because we felt, and I think everybody realized today, whether it's the European or the American, that this agreement was not an airtight, was not a really waterproof agreement that will serve the interest of the global stability and security. So we still believe the nuclear issue is a global responsibility and not only regional. But at the same time, the regional issue remains in the agenda of everybody there. So obviously the improved relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran is something positive. And it's hard to imagine progress on regional security, as you say, without diplomacy, without at least diplomatic relations. But the nuclear question is still of course, looming. I mean, tell me if this is wrong, but from the Saudi side, in part, the improvement in relations with Iran is partly because Riyadh feels exposed if there is some sort of escalation between Iran and the US or between Iran and Israel over the nuclear program. I mean, there's a danger that Gulf powers, that Saudi Arabia gets caught up in that. And that's part of the motive for this Iran-Saudi deal. I mean, in hindsight, surely it would have been better were the nuclear deal still in place? I mean, of course, I understand the point about the nuclear deal only dealing with the nuclear question and not with Iran's power projection in the region, which is, of course, hugely important for Iran's neighbours. I mean, I understand all that, but wouldn't the world today, including Saudi Arabia, be better off with controls on Iran's nuclear programme? You know, Iran is now closer to breakout time than it's ever been. And isn't the nuclear question intrinsically linked up in regional security, that it's hard to imagine a safe region without the nuclear question sort of resolved? Well, in the Iranian definition, Saudi Arabia is not the enemy, as even their president last week have said it, and the Gulf countries are not the enemy. But at the same time, for Iran, they still look at U.S. and Israel as the first in the agenda. Now, whether the U.S. or Israel are going to do any sort of military reaction toward the Iranian nuclear program, I don't know. What we you know, analyzed so far, the Israelis have done everything possible to slow down the Iranian nuclear program, i.e. they stopped shipment from outside. They created the biggest international lobbying against the Iran nuclear program. Uh, they have killed scientists. They have attacked uh, location and destroyed location. They stopped the centrifuge by a cyber attack. So they have done almost everything they think they can do. The only step left, of course, is to launch a complete uh, you know, attack. And so, and I don't think the Iranians today you know, are happy with the situation because they still see that as a big threat. And we hear the noises from Israel. Israel demands still zero enrichment. So how can you reach to a zero enrichment in Iran at the time when we hear a conflicting report? Some say 60, some say 80, 90, whatever is that. But at least they have passed the stage of getting into the dirty bomb, the 20% enrichment. I'm sure they have exceeded that. We do not wish to be part of any attack against Iran. We do not wish to be part of any war. I think we've had enough in the region since the Iraq-Iran war and then the invasion of Kuwait and then 2003. I think we still like to focus a little bit on the development in the region, which will benefit everybody, of course, instead of going to a war. But as I said before, it will all be according to how Iran behavior will be, how they're going to act, how they're going to respond. 
I know, for instance, the Saudi ambassador to Iran uh, nominated and also the Iranian ambassador to Saudi Arabia have been nominated. It's in the final process. And staff and people and cleaning both embassy and getting it ready. And so it's there. Uh, it's great. But at the same time, that's only first step. That is the step of having direct uh, communication, but it's not the step to resolve all the conflicting issue that's still there. Don't get me wrong. It's a good thing that uh, that uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran are, are talking. I mean, obviously, that's a positive. We don't need the mediators, you know. I mean, we are so thankful. And I think the statement of the agreement has been very clear, thanking Iraq and Oman for all the effort they have done. But I think uh, it's nothing like having a direct negotiation, direct talk in the country of both parties and resolving and going through many of the issues there. Do you think, though, I mean, we'll talk about Yemen in a moment, but broadly speaking, it seems unrealistic to expect that Iran is not going to continue to have influence in countries across the region, particularly those with Shia majorities or big minorities. So Iraq, Syria, of course, where it has the ties you talked about with Assad and Lebanon. Isn't that now a sort of geopolitical reality that others are going to have to come to terms with? And it's about arriving at some sort of understanding about that? Well, definitely it is a political reality. I mean, Iran took a great advantage of the situation. They have used, as I said, sectarianism as a dimension to expand their spheres of influence. They have always wanted to deal with the violent non-state actor instead of dealing with the state. They deal with Hezbollah, but not the Lebanese government. They deal with the Houthi, but not the Yemeni government. So, Well, Syria is perhaps the other way around, though. Right? Well, Syria, Syria, because it's an old relation, it really goes back to 1980 with the father. And I think at that time it was different because they needed Syria to offset Iraq. And Syria needed Iran uh, to protect itself also from Iraq. I think that was the reason for that one. But anyhow, I think if they want to be in a peace, I mean, nobody is antagonizing or reducing the importance of Iran and its regional power and its regional role. No, it's out of question. But at the same time, we hope and we wish that the Iranian will focus on the domestic development, you know, because that can bring a lot more, you know, better result instead of focusing in militia and militia attack and trying to threaten regime and government and system. I mean, look at every one of the Gulf countries, one way or another, have been, you know, affected by a negative attitude from Iran, with very little exception, of course, of, uh, of Oman. Yeah. And just before we move on, Abdulaziz, could I just ask one last one about Iran's nuclear program? I mean, it often strikes me that we hear a lot of opposition in Riyadh or in Abu Dhabi and Gulf capitals to the Iran nuclear deal. It unleashed Iran in the region, gave it more resources to project power in the parts of the Arab world that we're talking about. But you hear much less now opposition to the 2003 Iraq war, to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. But if anything upset the balance of power in the region between Iran and others, it was the Iraq war, at least as much, if not more, than the the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. I mean, is that because it was longer ago, so it sort of faded more from memory? Is it just because it's easier to criticize Democrats than Republicans? I mean, why so much attention on the nuclear deal compared with the Iraq war, which seems, in terms of the regional balance of power, seems more significant? I think when it comes to the nuclear deal, you know, we did not want it in the beginning, but we were forced to accept it. At that time, there was a lot of promises that things will be different and the regional security will be addressed. But now today we say, okay, this is the international responsibility. Let everybody else worry about it, you know. And I don't think 
Honestly, I think the region should get out of this Republican-Democrat game. You know, let the Americans decide whom do they want. Let's try to bring the serious interests of the region, you know, in, in, in place and see how the rest, uh, you know, will respond to that. And if there was a return to Trump or someone like him in the White House, there was a return to a sort of more belligerent posture towards Iran. I mean, there's already a lot of sanctions under Biden, but a sort of more overtly aggressive position and pressure on Gulf capitals on Saudi to join that. You don't think there would be a, a shift back or has the page really turned on that type of policy for Saudi? I think the page has been turned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in Yemen, there have also been talks now going on for some time between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. And maybe even there's been some suggestion that the, that uh, as part of the Iran-Saudi uh, deal, you know, that might help push forward those talks. From what I understand, the real difficulty is not necessarily getting to a Houthi-Saudi deal, but the difficulty is getting the Houthis to talk to other Yemeni parties, which are also, of course, part of the conflict. And it's very difficult to see the Yemen conflict being ended without some sort of intra-Yemeni process, that the Houthis, a little bit like the Taliban with the US in Afghanistan, the Houthis are not interested in talking to the other Yemenis. They just want to talk to the Saudis. They want Saudi Arabia to withdraw. Do you think there's a way of, of getting to a Saudi-Houthi deal that would then pave the way for for talks between the Houthis and the other Yemeni parties? Do you think there's a way of getting there? Well, I think to start with, no country really should support and recognize and deal with a violent non-state actors because it's against the international law. And I think but once we start doing that, then there is no limit where to stop, to start with. But at the same time, as the UN report called it, reality on the ground, unfortunately, they are there on the ground and they are controlling 94% the Houthi of the north side. At the same time, in the south, we have a different groups, not only just one, uh, one unit, what we call Al-Maddis Al-Intiqali, the uh, uh, transition council. You know, it's not only that, you know, there are different also other groups uh, in the south. Plus, Saudi did work a lot hard with the Gulf country to bring a new legitimate government with the new council. They're trying to bring things into a piece. I think if I look at Yemen today, what are the different scenarios and options if I just think loudly out of the box with you? Number one, military victory for Saudi Arabia. And I don't think that is there in the table because we're not discussing about, because that will have a massive casualty, a massive attack, international position. If that was an option, probably it would have happened already, right? It? Well, it could have been an option maybe some years ago, but not today. Second, the talk between the Houthi and the legitimate government. And I think, you know, talking, uh, you know, this talk, the problem, the Houthi, they see themselves controlling the ground. They see themselves uh, have achieved something and they believe talk should be only on their own terms and not on other terms. Getting a new Security Council resolution, you have Russia and China today. They may not support anything like this, so that may not work. The fourth scenario would be uh, the withdrawal of Saudi forces to their border. You protect, although we don't have much uh, there now, but still whatever left of them, you know, you withdraw to your border, you leave Yemen for the Yemeni, and that, you know, you protect your border only if there is an attack, you respond to that one. And I think, you know, this will create another Somal, will have another internal fight there. The wisest scenario, which I hope it will be, is to have, the reasonable talk is the inclusiveness of everybody. And at the same time, keep the unity of the country at this stage. 
although the Southern always wanted to have their own country back to the May 1990 border when they merged with the North side. So, you know, you can have a UN referendum and people can vote for that. And if the South enjoy majority, you know, they can go back to that uh, May 1990 border to that two separate state and so on. But again, you need to have a better political environment to be able to execute that. I think today, even the discussion, there are some uh, obstacles, there are some difficulties, although the Saudi and the Omani are doing an important job to bring that. The good thing is so far the ceasefire is continuing. But the rest of the detail, you know, what are the Saudi demand? I will just spell it out so you understand it. Saudi would like to have a safe border, land and maritime. Saudi would like to have a reasonable government and a friendly government to deal with. Saudi would like to have a non-existent of foreigner military presence in Yemen. Saudi, they would like to have a reasonable security structure in Yemen to be able to deal with the domestic and local issue, but not a huge defense capability missile that can represent a threat to the neighborhood. Saudi would like to see also an international conference, an international contribution to the reconstruction of Yemen. We, you know, they are happy to contribute to that, but they should not be the only one responsible. So I think it's up to the Yemeni themselves today, although there are many different parties, including tribalism, including some religious direction there. So that will always put a pressure in what sort of solution can be and how quickly. But at the same time, what I would say, leaving the situation as it is, even if Saudi would draw from Yemen, Without having a very clear vision of your neighborhood security, it will be also a, a dangerous situation. We have 1,450-kilometer border line with Yemen, and I think we need to have a safe border. And at the same time, one of the Saudi preconditions, they would like to maintain all previous agreement, including border, that has been signed with Yemen. And from what I understand at the moment, negotiations the Saudi Houthi negotiations are sort of stuck on this question of Houthi demands for the payment of salaries to its fighters from Yemeni oil revenues. The oil is mostly in areas controlled by the anti-Houthi side and sort of working out sort of details of those payments. And then, as you say, there's a lot of differences within the anti-Houthi side, the Southern Transitional Council, which you mentioned, the STC wants the South's independence. It's a separatist group, very different from some of the other groups in the anti-Houthi front. But Abdulaziz, let's say that you could reach some sort of agreement among Yemenis for sharing power, that the Houthis got a share of power, a share of influence in the security sector, the army, security forces, that was broadly speaking commensurate with the power that the rebels, that the Houthis enjoy on the ground right now. Could Saudi Arabia live with that if the Houthis were ready to commit to some of the things that you talked about? I think the Houthi, you know, can have legitimacy if they go through election and if they really do the votes, you know, they will have some support and they will be part, of course, of a, a coalition that will accept their participation. And I don't think anybody, you know, this is an internal Yemeni matters. It's, it's about the Yemeni to decide, you know, about it rather than anybody else. So if they can get sufficient vote, but at least they should do it in the right way, not by using the missiles and the gun and the military and the threat and the humanitarian issue. I mean, I honestly, I feel very sorry for the humanitarian situation there. But anyhow, let's see now how things go. I mean, still the negotiation is continuing. I think there is a political will on both sides to see the end of it, the devil in the detail. As for instance, you know, they wanted uh, Saudi Arabia to pay for all the uh, 
uh, government wages and salaries since September 2014 until today. And they want to receive the money themselves and then distribute it the way how they want it. Saudi are refusing. They say, no, we don't give you the money directly to you. I think we will be happy to contribute some, you know, to the, uh, but then it should go directly to the people. Because again, there is no governance. There is no control of how the flow of the money will go and all of these issues. Could we talk a little bit about the talks taking place now in Jeddah between the representatives of the two warring parties in Sudan? So the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces, the army. So for some years, Saudi Arabia has been trying to bring together leaders from around the Red Sea. It's formed the Red Sea Council, though, as far as I know, that council hasn't met formally yet. Security around the Red Sea, hugely important for Saudi development. A collapsed state in Sudan would be disastrous, obviously, for the Sudanese, but also disastrous for Saudi Arabia. Do you want to say something about Saudi's role in Sudan? Saudi have tried to pro, you know, to bring all the neighboring country and the one that has a sharing at the Red Sea together, with the exception, of course, of Israel. And everything was prepared that post-Arab summit, the Arab League summit, that this meeting will take place. And then hopefully the signature will be there and the headquarter will be in Riyadh. And everything was prepared for that. Unfortunately, what happened in Sudan today between the uh, military and the uh, RSF It's honestly, from a humanitarian point of view, I feel very sorry. I have a great sympathy to the Sudanese people and the nation there. They're very nice people. They have suffered a lot. They do need a war like this to increase their suffering and difficulties. But at the same time, both seems to be quite in control of of the military forces. And this is uh, on the absence of the uh, good governance, in the absence of law and regulation, you create something, then it becomes your enemy. The uh, RSF was created by the Sudanese uh, in a previous government, you know, to protect them, to help, to do something. But at the same time, the head of the RSF, he has his own resources. He's still maintaining, you know, his position. And the mediation today is focusing on the ceasefire and focusing on the humanitarian at this stage before anything else. But of course, definitely, if situation deteriorates in Sudan, If we have a continuous security vacuum there, it will have a great danger for the Red Sea. The Red Sea, it was a very safe passage before until the Iranian and the Israelis start attacking each other, you know, vessels. And so, and now we have Sudan. Sudan, of course, will have a major impact in all the mega projects on the Red Sea, on the harbor, on the Babel Mandeb, on the Swiss Canal, you know, so it will have a lot of consequences, yes. And one of the complaints, certainly from Sudanese civilian politicians, is that the talks at the moment only involve the representatives of the two warring parties, that they don't involve civilian politicians, they don't involve some of the people that were involved in the revolution some years ago. And there's a sort of fear that if the talks continue like this, then what happens to the, the idea of a return to civilian rule in Sudan? The U.S. and other Western powers, they talk a lot about a return to civilian rule. Do you think that has felt the same way in, in Gulf capitals? Of course, it's the ultimate aim. We wanted to have the civilian role. We wanted to make sure that the people uh, choose the party, although there have been many political parties created and supported by external countries. But if, if they leave it up to the Sudanese, I think the Sudanese know whom do they want. They know what to do. 
and uh, they have practice, although they had a military, of course, uh, you know, since uh, late 60s, but at the same time, they still can have their own civilian, and this is the determination of the people. And I don't think neither of the two, neither the uh, military nor the RSF, their intention is to have a full control of the power and not to bring the civilian and not to bring the political parties back into practice. So one of the fears at the moment, uh, Abdulaziz, one of the fears in Sudan is at the moment it's just the two armies fighting. But obviously they both have the army and Hemeti, the leader of the rapid support forces, they both have ties to neighboring countries, to countries further afield. And for now, most foreign powers appear to be waiting to see. It doesn't seem like they're weighing in. But of course, what's happened in many of the recent wars in the region is that outside powers get involved. And then once one is involved, others get involved. And it's much more difficult then to end the conflict. You have this sort of regionalized or internationalized war. Some of the countries that have close ties to both sides in Sudan, so Egypt, for example, with the army, Hemeti has a lot of his wealth in the UAE, for example. I mean, how much do you think Saudi Arabia is aware of the, the danger of other countries getting sucked in and doing what it can to stop that? They are fully aware of that. and They understand that. And I'm sure, uh, you know, they are taking that in concentration. But at the same time, a closer collaboration between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. U.S., of course, is a big and strong country. It's a superpower that can really exercise, if they wish to, to stop any external intervention. Because if you leave it up to the Sudanese, if you try to help them to overcome, if you pressure both sides, they cannot survive in their own like this. You know, they would need to have an external link. So if you stop that, if you control that, then definitely you're going to help to bring peace to the situation. You know, I just saw lately uh, a very interesting statistic. 60% of Sudan export, it's in gold, and it goes to UAE. And that can tell us something. Can I ask Abdulaziz about the prospects for diplomatic relations with Israel? Some media reports suggest some quite steep conditions Riyadh has made of the US for normalization, hard security guarantees, help with its civilian nuclear program that the Saudis would want if they were to normalize with Israel. Maybe also difficult with this Israeli government. But how do you see prospects for normalization with Israel happening anytime soon? You know, I have not heard any official comment on that and what you said, you know, uh, or official things saying the Saudi have put this condition into the U.S. What I know about the Saudi condition, they did not mind any country to normalize with Israel from the Arab League countries. In fact, and the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries, we have Mo'al, out of the 57 members, there's more than 35. They have a direct diplomatic relation with Israel. So that's up to the country to decide you know, what sort of relation they want. Saudi, they always believed first peace and then normalization. This is why the 2002 initiative, which became the Arab League initiative, you know, is emphasizing on the uh, conditionality of that. First, you know, we have uh, the peace and then normalization can take place. And it's up to Israel. They had many chances, but I don't think Saudi will compromise in this matter. Could I ask something about how Saudi Arabia sees its relations with the US and China, a challenge that many countries are now facing, how to cope with big power competition, particularly US-China rivalry, but also these collapsed relations between the West more broadly and Russia. So for Saudi Arabia, China is hugely important for 
its economic development, its biggest market for Saudi oil, for example, but it goes well beyond that. And yet Riyadh has this close security partnership with the US. And you talked earlier about changing views of US security guarantees in the region, particularly after the 2019 attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure. But even if people feel let down by the US's response there, there's no other country that's going to give the sort of security guarantees that the US can in the region. So how does Riyadh balance its relations between the US and China and for that matter with Russia? I mean, again, it's something of a, a sort of wider challenge, maybe an opportunity too in some ways, but a challenge that other sort of mid-sized regional powers like Saudi Arabia are, are, are grappling with. I think we understand our relation with China as an economic partnership. With the US is more of a political and security. It used to be all, but uh, of course now the focus is in these things. We have not changed our military doctrine. We have not changed pricing our commodity in any other currency than the dollar. We have kept our, uh, most of the money is in T-bills with the U.S. So I think still the relation, there are differences in perspective and looking at it. And at the same time, there is a shifting agenda for the U.S. The U.S. today, the top agenda is Russia-Ukrainian war and then the Chinese threat to Taiwan. That's their, their top agenda. So is the Pacific and the Russia-Ukraine issue. So this is why they have reduced a little bit maybe. Although, by the way, they still have the largest boots in the ground in the region. They still have the largest military presence and they have still have the largest available military equipment in the region. So there is no compromises about the, you know, the U.S. relation. What the region wants, they want the U.S. to understand that our relation with the U.S. does not mean that we have to cut or reduce or not to have a strong economic relation with countries like China. Russia, we don't have much in terms of economic relation with Russia. Russia is a producer of raw material. They have oil, gas, we have minerals like us. But at the same time, it's not that strategic. So, you know, we understand the difference. We understand the value of the U.S. relation. We don't think there is a compromise on the U.S. side. But at the same time, we wish that the U.S. have a better understanding of our interest which is basically, you know, we want to have a development, we want to enlarge our export, we deserve to have a better oil prices to be able to spend in the development, which ultimately also will benefit the West in general, and the U.S. in particular. Dr. Abdulaziz, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for your interview and for the talk. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Saudi Arabia, on Gulf politics, on all the stuff that we talked about today on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, as ever, to all of you, to our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. Or you can write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave a positive rating or review. Give us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. We were a little bit late with this episode, so I very much hope that we'll be back on schedule and that you'll join us again later this week.